Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is Colin. Um, so, why are we doing this show today? Uh, we're doing it partly because the last electoral cycle was a time uh, of significant Native American political activism. But it's also the case that I didn't want this conversation to be confined to that. And I don't want this conversation to be confined to this one episode of the show. I, I do feel, you might have hear, heard me say this before the news, that of all the American subgroups, I think the the one whose stories are the least heard are paradoxically the same people who were the first here. Uh, and I think it's incredibly important that we start telling these stories. And they've been telling their stories for a long time. Maybe it's just important we start listening. Anyway, uh, we'll be talking about uh, a lot of different aspects of that. But yes, one of the linchpins will be the way in which in record numbers, uh, Native Americans were elected to significant offices this year. So um, kind of our, our primal text uh, for this uh, is by Sarah Sinclair, uh, our first guest here. Uh, Sarah Sinclair, an oral historian uh, of the Cree Ojibwe uh, descent. She is the editor of the Voice of Witness Oral History Collection, How We Go Home, Voices from, the Indige from Indigenous North America. She teaches in the Oral History Master's Program at Columbia University. Uh, welcome to our show, Sarah Sinclair. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, before we begin, uh, I'd like to give you a compliment about your book that has nothing to do with its subject matter. <laughs> I think it is, it might be the best footnoted book I've seen in, you know, decades. Like every oh, time, wow. <laughs> every time I came upon something that I didn't understand, the explanation <laughs> was at the bottom of the page. I didn't have to go to the back of the book and try to figure out, you know, I, you know, and, and the explanations were really good. I, I, I was so grateful for that. I was also Thank you. increasingly aware of all the things I don't know and need to have explained to me. So it was good that you were doing that. All right. So let's uh, get that out of the way. So let's talk about this last uh, electoral cycle. This is something that you've written about recently, oh. too. Uh, there was uh, a I think a significant effort among organizers, one of whom you will meet at the end of this show, uh, to make sure that Native American peoples registered, uh, voted, uh, and knew about candidates who represented them, candidates who, so to speak, looked like them. Uh, say more about that. Yeah, I mean, all of this, there was such a great turnout um, throughout Native American communities, um, nations and states. Um, and then this really came into the forefront of the national consciousness, actually due to a mishap um, that happened on CNN. CNN was reporting um, voter turnout more generally, and they had a graphic that ended up going viral um, in which they lumped Native Americans into a subcategory of voters that they called something else. Um, and so this, this graphic ended up going viral um, on Indigenous Twitter, on Facebook. And, you know, Native Americans are kind of known for their sense of humor. And we're quick to start laughing about, you know, yet another instance of 
of erasure. But at the same time, it was particularly ironic and particularly maddening, given just how significant turnout had been in this election cycle. Um, the year saw a record six Native Americans elected to Congress. Um, and they were especially crucial to the Democratic Democratic Party's success in flipping both Arizona and Wisconsin due to great efforts made there. Yes. So, by the way, I'm looking at that screen grab right now. And so you've got this chart that has white, Latino, black, Asian, mm-hmm. and in between black and Asian, something else, 6%. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so, exactly. Uh, so if, if there was... You know, a mobilization that that re- represented something bigger than what's been seen in the past. Were there one or two key issues that represented the fulcrum for this political mobilization? You know, it's not an area that I'm expert on, and I'm looking forward to hearing from your guest later. I would imagine that healthcare, particularly on the Navajo Nation, um, was significant. I also think probably. You know, I know that during the Obama tenure, there'd been a real increase in monies dedicated to infrastructure on Native American reservations. Um, And I would imagine that that would be something that would have been very significant in getting people back to the polls. So I want to talk about the stories in your book, these uh, oral histories in your book, some of which are just lacerating in in terms of the just trauma that they describe, some of which uh, I think uh, are very hopeful. Maybe we should should start by talking Mm -hmm. about one or two of the hopeful ones. Um, uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, Ashley Hemmers. Sure. Yeah. So this project actually started out as my master's thesis project. Um, I I came to Columbia uh, University to study oral history Um, And I, you know, I should clarify that I'm First Nations, which is why I say they when I'm referring to Native Americans. I'm from the other side of the border myself. I grew up in Toronto, but my Indigenous lineage um, is on my father's side. He is a Peguis Nation, which is Cree Ojibwe. Um, So I came to the program with an interest in using oral history to amplify Indigenous stories because, um, as you pointed out in your introduction, Um, There really isn't a lot of space and hasn't been a lot of space made for Indigenous people to tell their own stories. So I was very conscious of the need for that. I grew up in Toronto, attended pretty progressive um, schools there myself. And yet, even in that environment, you know, these stories just weren't there. So that was my intention. Ashley was someone that I interviewed towards my thesis work. And that that project had a much more specific narrative arc, which united all of the, the interviews. That was interviewing um, Native Americans in particular at that point, no Canadians, who had grown up in reservation communities, left to attend elite academic institutions, and then moved home again to work for their nations. And Ashley is someone um, that I interviewed towards that. So she is um, from Fort Mojave, which is a small nation um, which overlaps Arizona, California, and Nevada. And she really narrates a story of um, growing up in a community that had really suffered from the intergenerational trauma that is unfortunately, um, you know, very widespread throughout North America. But um, she is a very bright young person who's really intensely supported by her mother and her grandmother, really raised with the culture and a lot of pride about who she is. And she pursues education, ultimately ends up at Yale. 
and then moves back to work for her nation um, and is now tribal administrator there. And she, along with the, the team of people that she works with now, have really turned things around in many significant ways. One really important one to mention that now they have created new businesses on the tribe to the extent that they can fully fund any member who who wants to go and pursue an education as Ashley did. Yeah, I mean, I, and to do justice to the story, I think you kind of have to read it. It, it actually reminded me almost of a Native American version of Tara Westover's book, uh, uh, An Education of Educator. Uh, yeah, mm. I forget what it's called. But, but, you know, the degree to which what she does is such... Uh, um, an, an anomaly. I mean, there there is just nobody around her that she could look at that would even give her the sense of the first step that leads right. up a staircase to to Yale. And there's this kind of hair raising story about. I mean, they just scraped together enough money to for the flight out there, and so she can have like a hundred <laughs> bucks in her pocket, and they're going there. And she has this indomitable grandmother. Uh, maybe you yeah. could just quickly talk about the the rain that they go through on the way to the airport. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a really Ashley's an amazing storyteller, and she she narrates the day that she leaves Fort Mojave to go to Yale and she's describing, you know, she's a, she lives in the desert, but when the rain comes, the rain really, really comes. And her and her grandmother and her mother set out in what's a pretty beat up old car. You know, the brakes aren't working, the rain is coming, the roads are flooding. And, you know, Ashley's thinking, you know, maybe this isn't the day, maybe we need to turn back. Um, and her grandmother says, no, no, we've, we've started. We can't turn around now. If we turn around now, you might not do it. We've got to do it. <laughs> and she gets, they get her to the airport and, once they get to the airport, Ashley's telling her mom and her grandmother, you know, don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. I hear there's free food there. There's free food at events. And as you said, you know, she left with $100 in her pocket and then arrived and had to, you know, get a cab to campus and had to tip the driver. And, you know, by the time she's settled in her dorm room, um, that that little bit of money that she had is greatly diminished. But she does find, you know, she she talks about how she attends lots and lots of events and talks and she gets really interested for a stretch in people who talk about maps because, you know, she's just led in all kinds of different directions, both to learn, but also to eat. Yes, I mean, that's, uh, 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 first of all, I should say that I attended the same fine institution uh, mm -hmm. that she did, <laughs> although, of course, I did in the late 1800s. Uh, but um, just the idea, you know, she comes from significant poverty, uh, where, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the whole question of what's going to be on the stove on any given night uh, is a pretty yeah. open one and a pretty pressing one. And so this idea that you can walk into these beautiful dining halls uh, at, at Yale and just sit down and, well, first of all, go through a line get whatever you want and as much of it as you want and that just sort of baked into your your experience there i, I mean i have to say I, I i never thought about it that way in the four years that i was there uh i mean i was glad to have food but i didn't think about it that way and so many sure. aspects of the story just kind of opened my eyes that way you know maybe particularly because of your unique position, it might be worth mentioning that. Okay, so I didn't go in the late 1800s, but I did go in the <laughs> 1970s. I, went, uh -huh. I was there from 72 to 76. I don't remember anything about Native Americans at Yale. I don't remember any. I mean, maybe there were courses. Yeah. Maybe there was a center. I don't think so, though. I don't think there was anything like that. And so even though... Like, yeah. 
Yeah, even though Ashley's story reveals some real flaws there, and people who, deans who think that they know her story because they're Italian-American and they look Native American or something, um, at least it seems as though whether we're talking about Columbia or Yale or wherever, there, there is an understanding that this is something that has to be featured and taught and, and made part of the institution. Maybe you could say more about that. Yeah, I think there's an increasing understanding. I don't think it's perfect yet. I think there's been a lot of, I mean, starting with probably, trace. I think probably tracing it back to the 1970s when, you know, Native American cultural and religious practices, which had been criminalized, were decriminalized, that allowed people to start to, communities to start to recover culture and language that had been so suppressed. Um, and it started... A new trend, I think, of Native American activism in particular. And so Native Americans started to advocate for more inclusion, for greater representation at these institutions. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the things that really struck me about, you know, speaking about Ashley in particular, you know, she tells this story um, that when she was a young person, there was a period of time where she became really interested in the Holocaust. Um, because reading about the Holocaust, she was better able to understand the intergenerational trauma that she saw in her own community. Um, and she's she was born in the 80s. So even at that time, you know, which is probably around 2000, there weren't texts available to her in her own community that described those conditions in Indigenous terms. So that really was one of the great motivators for me in creating um, what I hope is a really accessible book because I wanted to provide for Indigenous people, for Indigenous young people, um, more of that representation and accessibility. And then for a mainstream reader, hopefully more of that context in terms of the, the history to better understand, you know, some of the issues that exist within Native American communities today. Right. Um, you did make a very accessible book. Uh, I, you've written a very accessible book and it's, it's, it really is kind of it's thrilling at times uh, to read these stories, sometimes in a good way and sometimes in a really, really bad way, but but both ways. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, you know, we're going to go to a break or I'm going to get in trouble with uh, Betsy Kaplan. But um, <laughs> but I do want to say that whole idea of the extirpation of culture, you know, the criminalizing of music, dancing, ceremony, ritual, you know, it's mm -hmm. it, it is such a. A consistent feature of colonialism. One thing I learned about last mm -hmm. year is that steel drums in places like Trinidad and Tobago are kind of the result of, of the colonial governance banning the native drums, the drums that they had used for their music, uh, and they mm. eventually kind of you know begin to make music on other things that were available. I, I think that that if you if you want to subjugate a people, one of the first things you want to do is strip away the culture that they've had mm -hmm. for hundreds and maybe thousands of years. Uh, all right, let's take a break, and we're gonna uh, meet. Uh, one of the people who is featured uh, in, in this uh, excellent book right after said break. This is, this is our time. Got me bringing up the heat from the east. That deep wake up. If you sleep, wear marks. I'm a pleat like cousin. Did you eat? Corn, beans, and squash, but don't forget none. From the father and the mom, born a daughter and a son. Two spirits out of one. We evolved you just begun. Life's golden. All right, uh, we are back. Uh, this show is going to fly by too quickly, I can already tell. Uh, we're talking to Sarah Sinclair, uh, an oral historian uh, and the author or the uh, collector, I guess, uh, of the oral histories uh, in a uh, collection called How We Go Home, Voices from Indigenous North America. It includes both um, 
the U.S. Uh, and, and the First Nations stories from Canada. Uh, and, and we're now going to uh, be joined by one of the people who does appear in that book. Um, it, it's a pretty, um, well, it's a, it's a unique story. All, all of them are. So joining us now is Zubin Ornelas, uh, who is Tigua Apache. I hope I'm saying all that correctly. Uh, he worked at the New York City Ballet and as a substance abuse counselor. Zubin, welcome to our conversation. Hi, uh, thank you for... Uh, Colin, for welcoming me. Uh, I'm coming to you from uh, Lenape land. I'm in New York City. <laughs> yeah, I know but that. I wanted to acknowledge, uh, do a land acknowledgement there. Um, I particularly enjoyed your introduction to to the show. Uh, it was very well thought out, and uh, you had questions. The way that you presented it, it showed that you had a, a genuine interest in this, in what's going on. Um also listening to Sarah, I'm just waiting for the day when MSNBC has Sarah on as a regular panelist discussing everyday issues of Native Americans and actually what's happening in our country. I can see Sarah doing that. I, I can I can too. I like that idea. So one of the things that I was struck by at the beginning of your story is um, a description of growing up in uh, South Central L.A. in the kind of the Watts area where there are these already kind of burgeoning movements towards black pride uh, and towards the organization by people like Cesar Chavez uh, of uh, Mexican and Mexican-American workers, but that the message you really got uh, was to stay hidden, that, that rather than having some kind of a burgeoning mo mo uh, moment of pride, it was hopefully nobody will even notice that we're here. Can you say more about that? Well, actually, I can say more about that. Uh, when you talk about intergenerational trauma, um, I learned about intergenerational trauma from uh, Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart. Uh, and she was, she had learned about it also through studying the Holocaust. Uh, but what I discovered was looking back, I can see how intergenerational trauma affected Native Americans differently in different areas. And in urban areas, it's a different situation because we don't have a place where we meet or we see each other on a regular basis. So I'm speaking about more or less an urban area experience. So uh, when you're sort of put down and what happens is you get the original put down is when they take your kids away, when they send you to, uh, to schools, when they uh, try to actually basically destroy uh, the roles of men in the society, that passes on. And ultimately, little is taught about our traditions and our belief systems. So what happens is we don't have any place to, anything to hang on to we have to try to kind of find it ourselves as we go on but if you're so beat down and you don't think and you don't have anywhere to look for it and, in, and especially in a dangerous area where i lived you wind up hiding Right. Uh, you know, in your story, you talk about discovering alcohol at a very young age. Uh, you also just, you know, after a, a career uh, of doing kind of stage work in the world of dance, which you you came to love, uh, also developing injuries that led to Percocet, which led to addiction. And in the sense that I got, I just want to build on what you were just saying, Zubin, is that those are things that you turn to when you don't know how to find 
the normal healing channels of your culture, that if nobody tells you that there's something like the Sundance, if nobody tells you what the people, what your people have been doing for hundreds and thousands of years, you wind up turning to these bad solutions. Maybe you can say more about that too. Well, what it is, you, it's, you're overwhelmed. Your, your feelings are overwhelmed. You're overwhelmed with oppression. So you find anything to ease that. And alcohol will numb that for you. Alcohol will numb that feeling. And so it, it, you don't care what happens. It doesn't matter what you do. And you, you wind up putting yourself in much more dangerous situations when you're an, on alcohol. But the fact that it's a numbing ex experience. Alcohol is, can be considered a medicine. It works. Mm -hmm. If you drink one or two drinks of alcohol and you have stress, it's going to go away. Yeah. The problem is that uh, if you're an alcoholic, you think more is better. Mm -hmm. Yes. Rather than, you know, taking one Percocet every four hours, four Percocets every hour. So what saved you? What, what, what turned your life around? Was it one thing? Was it two things? I know there, there was a, a person, uh, uh, there was love involved, but, but I think also culture was involved. Well, what really happened to me was I had completely, I, you know, when you're, when you're drinking alcohol, what you're trying to do is become isolated. You're trying to be self-sufficient. All you want is the alcohol. And what you need is the opposite of that. You need people, you need relationships. And I was at a point in my alcoholism where I was going to die. I was on my deathbed and I knew it. And I decided I didn't want to die. And, and even if I were to die, my concern was if I die and I die in my apartment, I'm going to be embarrassed because they're going to have to break the doors down because the apartment smells so bad because I'm in there rotting. That's how an alcoholic thinks. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, I decided that I wanted to live. And I called my doctor and said, could you get me into detox? Could you help me? And he said, yes. And then the following morning when I woke up, I thought, well, maybe I overreacted. Mm -hmm. But the seed had been planted and I went to, de and I detoxed. I just, I just did it. And it happened. And alcoholism, uh, you wind up, it, it affects your mind as much as it does your body. So you, I was paranoid as I, I presented with mental illness when I came out. But I was, the seed had been planted, so I wasn't going to give up. So I, the therapist sent me to an AA meeting and I went to that AA meeting. I went to, you know, 298 meetings in 90 days. And slowly I started to, you know, people thought I had a mental illness because when you go in there, that's how you, you appear. And it, within the 90 days, you start to clear up a little bit. And, and, and I had, I started to come alive and I decided that I cared and going from not caring to caring was the miracle that happened, was the thing that changed everything for me. All right. So no. I, and I'm thinking just in the interest of time, first of all, people should be reading this book and, and should be reading Zubin's uh, entire story here, because uh, like so many of the narratives in this book, it's it's an incredible story. Um, Sarah, I wanted you to have some time to respond a little bit. You know, uh, before we went on the air, Sarah, um, Zubin and I were quickly talking about the fact that uh, 
Another thing that's happening right now is that there's an effort to restore the Olympic medals of Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe in 1912 was demonstrably the greatest athlete in the world uh, and lost his medals over something that is not even a rule anymore, that he made a few dollars playing baseball at some point. But another thing about Jim Thorpe is is also there in your book. He went to a place, it was called the Carlisle Industrial Indian School. Uh, and, and they had that philosophy that you mentioned in the book, Sarah, which is uh, often expressed as, I think, kill the Indian, free the man. Uh, that there was an educational system that existed to pull uh, Native American p- children out of their homes, put them in, in different surroundings, put them in, in residential schools, and basically just beat the culture right out of them. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that, Sarah. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kill the Indian, save the man. Um, yeah. I mean, both in Canada, we call them the Indian residential schools. Here, they were the Indian boarding schools. And it's very, very uncommon to meet someone Um, of my generation, I'm 42, who doesn't have a grandparent or a parent who, um, who attended one of these schools. It is a hugely widespread, um, experience shared by, um, Native North American peoples. And as you said, the philosophy, this was a government enacted and sometimes church in Canada, um, also facilitated by the churches, but a policy that was designed to break up the Native American, Native North American family. And the idea was, you know, if you attack the culture, if you disrupt transmission of the culture and the language, then you, you break up the family. Um, and ultimately that sort of detaches the, the link to the land. Um, because obviously the project of both the, the American and the Canadian governments was to move Native Americans, First Nations peoples off the land to expand the settler state. And so the residential schools were part of that larger project to, to access land. Um, and the repercussions are enormous. The intergenerational legacy um, was just kind of explored in this huge uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. It was a five-year-long, essentially, oral history project, which traveled. Canada had huge um, commissions. Tens of thousands of survivors um, came and spoke and shared their testimonies and their experiences, spoke of the trauma and the abuse that they suffered at the schools, And one of the things that many of my narrators um, speak about in the book, whether they had gone to these schools themselves or whether they were raised by people who had gone to these schools, is that it's had a hugely detrimental effect on Native American families. Because, you know, imagine you're five or six or seven or eight years old, you're removed from your own family, your own community, you attend an institution in which you're taught that everything that you knew was wrong, your language is wrong, your culture is wrong, um, you're shamed, and then you're released, you know, when you age out of it. And then you're, you have your own children. You don't have the skills uh, required to parent. You haven't learned how to love. You haven't received love. And one of my narrators, Geraldine Manson in particular, talks about how, you know, she was very lucky to have a real role model um, and loving figure in her mother-in-law and that her mother-in-law really made it a project to help Geraldine learn how to love again so that she could raise her children with love. Um, but then you have another narrator, Irvin Chartrand, who speaks about really not understanding the way that he was growing up, not understanding why his mother 
was drinking, seeing her as only an alcoholic, not understanding that what was going on with her was the trauma um, of the experiences that she had at that school until he was grown himself. And then he learned more about what had happened to her and understood his own life, his own childhood in this larger historical and socio- sociological um, context. Okay, I'm supposed to end the segment here, but I kind of don't want to end it without hearing from Zubin one more time. So Zubin, and I'm going to ask you to be uh, somewhat brief because I'm already going to get in trouble. But, um, you know, b- right before we went on, I was talking to you about that Jim Thorpe thing. And what you said is that what you would say generally is we're awake now. Explain what you meant when you said we, meaning Native American well, peoples, are awake. We have, we've had prophecies. And people consider them to be sort of just superstitious things that are said. And what has happened is there's a net that that has covered the earth. And that net has allowed people to communicate with each other. And But they didn't say anything about fake news. That was a prophecy that the spider web would take over the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a prophecy that our elders would be born in our children. And our children would not be born with the trauma. And you, I started to see that out in the West, where the kids were born. They wanted to know their culture from the day they got it, the day they were born. So this is a really positive time in our history right now, in every direction, because people are awake. You're asking the right questions. We have non-native people, allies, who are wanting to know what happened, and we have a voice for that now. Our voices are waking. People are now able to communicate with each other. Uh, Sarah put together somewhat, in my opinion, a sacred book. Mm-hmm. I can see why you would say that. All right. I'm going to, first of all, I have to stop now. Uh, but I just want to thank both of you, Sarah and Zubin. And I want to promise you this is not the last episode we're going to do on this topic. Uh, not the last episode we're going to do about some of the other issues that are in Sarah's book that we don't have time to get to. Right now, unfortunately, we have to leave briefly while some very nice people come on and ask you to support the programming that we're doing right now. So if this whole thing means something to you, it would be wonderful if you could donate, uh, if you could pledge during this little break. And I've been thinking about our mother. How they took her away from her people Put her in a boarding school Away from her mother's You're listening to The Colin McEnroe Show here on WNPR, Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel here with my colleague Lee Newton waiting on your call of support at 1-800-584-2788. Lee, how you doing? I am good, Lucy. It's good to hear you. And uh, and we do hope that you will go to the phone or go online right now and support the Colin McEnroe Show. It's a, a signature program, of course, on Connecticut Public Radio, much like yours, Lucy, where we live. But uh, we want to keep it supported. We want to make sure Colin is always here bringing us uh, the bounty of his curiosity and intelligence and all the things that interest him with every show. It's such an exciting program to listen to every day. You never know what what he's going to bring to the table, but we know Colin is wonderful and we want to keep him right here on Connecticut Public Radio. We can do that with your support when you go to WNPR.org, make a contribution there online. That's easy, it's safe, it's secure, or you can call us at 1-800-584-2788. 
We have a goal this hour to raise $1,000 to support our station campaign and the Colin McEnroe Show. So please do your part. And that number again is 1-800-584-2788. Uh, Lee, we know so many people listen to our programs using our live stream at WMPR.org. And when you're there, you can click on that donate link. And it's so easy to figure out how much do I want to give to my public radio station that I depend on each and every day. And then there's a great list of thank you items that we offer our listeners who become supporters. It's getting cold and the Connecticut Public Radio socks are a great thing uh, to select for $8 a month. Uh, We have so many uh, great products uh, here, uh, whether it's the Connecticut Public Beanie or maybe you're a Fresh Air fan uh, for a gift of $10 a month. But the important thing is, is that you pick up the phone or go online now to support the station. Again, it's our end of the year campaign. We can't do it without your help. And I am so proud, Lee, when we think about how even in this pandemic, we have been able to broadcast and continue to provide you quality programming each and every day because of producers, because of people like Kat Pastor, our tech producer, and so many other people behind the scenes. If you appreciate this program, now is the time to donate. 1-800-584-2788. Yes, Lucy, that's exactly right. And, you know, and it's not just uh, because of, I mean, of course, it's a big part of the producers and the team there, but it's also because of members, because of individuals who have come forth this year and in years past and allowed us the financial wherewithal to continue to expand our programming here and continue to make the signature shows like the Colin McEnroe show as strong as ever. So thank you for that. If you've given in the past, If you're ready to give for the first time or maybe give again, here's the number 1-800-584-2788, or you can go to WNPR.org and make your contribution there. And I do want to mention that the socks that Lucy, you were just talking about, we have a limited number of those socks. We're going to be having a brand new design that's going to be coming soon. So if you want that great uh, original Connecticut Public Radio socks, this is the time to pledge for them. Or if you'd like the black beanie hat, which is great. It's black. It's got our little P logo on it. It, It's one size fits most, and it's very nice and warm in this weather. That's for a gift of $10 a month. So make your contribution right now. Uh, Go to WNPR.org. Support the Colin McEnroe Show. It's such an important show in our lineup, and we want to make sure that it's always here for you, 1 o'clock every weekday. So support it right now. 1-800-584-2788 or visit uh, WNPR.org. Both Lee and I are transplants to Connecticut. Uh, neither That's one of true. us are natives. I've actually lost track. How long have I lived here in in this great state? But one thing I do love during these fun drives, Lee, is hearing from our listeners from all over the state, people who donate time and time again. We have our monthly sustaining members. Uh, they pick an amount, and each month it comes out of their credit card supporting the station for programs like the Colin McEnroe Show. We can't do it without your support. And for those of you who have already donated this year and are able to do so again. We thank you for your generosity. If you have yet to pick up the phone at 1-800-584-2788 or going online to WMPR.org, you have time to do so. It takes just a couple of minutes. You're going to feel great knowing that you're supporting your public radio station here at Connecticut Public Radio. The number again, 1-800-584-2788 or WMPR.org. 
We are back. Uh, this is the time when I am uh, proud and pleased to thank Kat Pastor, who's there in the studio making this whole, whole show happen uh, technically and artistically. And of course, to thank Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show and producer of this uh, episode. Um, so, yeah, I said I said at the outset that one of the reasons that we wanted to talk about this whole topic and will continue to talk about this whole topic in future episodes has to do with politics, actually, about what happened in the 2020 election, how, in fact, the Native American vote in many places coalesced and got behind candidates also of Native American origin. Uh, here to talk to us about that uh, is Tara Benali, uh, who is of Hopi descent, born for Navajo and is a field director at the Utah Rural Project. Welcome to our show. Hi, thank you for having me. So, um, first of all, tell us tell us about the Utah Rural Project. What what does that actually do? So, Rural Utah Project is a nonprofit organization, a C three. Um, what we do is we back in two thousand and eighteen, we are initially our first um, first thing that we wanted to do out there in Southern San Juan County, Utah, was to do voter registration uh, across the Navajo Nation there in Utah alone. In and um, well, actually, before I'm going to turn back to that in just a second. But, I, you know, this there's sort of an, uh, an immediate news tie into all this. You may be registering and organizing voters for yet another election in New Mexico pretty soon. It does appear as though the top choice for the secretary of the interior and the Biden candidate uh, is one of the uh, people reelected in this case uh, to Congress, a, a person of Native American uh, dissent. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has also thrown in her weight behind this choice. Uh, tell us about this member of Congress. Who is she? What's her name? And, and how excited are you by this idea? I'm extremely excited. And this would be Deb Hollins. Um, she was elected into office back in 2018. And, then, and let me tell you, that has made a world of difference for a lot of indigenous nations across the United States. Um, it gives them an opportunity, it gave them an opportunity, still gives them an opportunity to see that there it's possible for a change if we just work together, come together and just really put the nonprofit organizations who are helping in this effort and really work with them and, and make things possible this way. Um, and so, yes, absolutely. And we're looking forward to that um, election for Deb Holland to be the to become the next secretary of interior. Yeah, so uh, we should say you've met Deb Holland. Um, it, it, under New Mexico law, she would not have to resign her House seat until her confirmation is complete as Secretary of the Interior. Um, but then there would be there'll be another election. Uh, they'll have to set the date of a general election to fill that vacancy to occur within 77 to 91 days of the vacancy taking effect. So uh, th this is kind of where you and other people like you come in and get back to work. Talk about the difficulties of registering uh, Native American people. There are some special thresholds that have to be scaled uh, that, that maybe don't exist in, in other places. Well, right now, um, I think a lot of it has to do with broadband, Wi-Fi, inter, um, internet connections, um, connectivity, um, cell phone um, services. Uh, we that was one of our, I think our major, our biggest problem across Navajo Nation alone, um, just this past year, and even in San Juan County back in 2018. And so, so the door-to-door -door knocking has been a very great. Um, 
a successful way to reach reach out to community members. But because of COVID, we had to quit quit knocking on doors and come up with in, innovative ways to reach out to the communities. We have um, by uh, let's see, our first shutdown after COVID had happened back in March of this year, we had decided to call the people that we had registered earlier on in the year and see if they could reach out to their friends and family and get information to us to see if they were registered and if they if we could if they could share their contact information with us and that way in return we could reach out to those community members and drop off call call ahead of time drop off a ziploc bag containing a a voter registration form a pin our contact information or our field organizers that's working in within those communities, their contact information. And once the individual have filled out the voter registration forms, they would call us back and we would pick up the forms and with no contact. Well, that worked for a little while, but then the second shutdown came with COVID. Uh, and so we had to go back to the drawing board and see what we could come up with to, to really make it a little more successful so we could capture that much more people. By then we had had a lot of people, other organizations and other entities come out and do food distribution or propane distribution or firewood distribution. And so anytime, so we would ask those organizations to see if we could be a part of those distribution and do voter registration. And so we were able to capture that much more people. And once the, after the, um, second lockdown as well we had also reached out to a lot of the shopping centers to see if we couldn't do drive-through voter registration where people would drive up to our tables get a, um, a voter registration form or we would check their voter registration status um, status using our text text tool and so we just come up with different innovative ways to really overcome a lot of these obstacles that we had faced there was always the language barrier out there um, making sure that people were able to drop off their ballots in time early enough for uh, for, for it to re be received at the county recorder's office before the um, election. Um, as you know, COVID had really slowed down the mail process and then everything else that was happening with, with the postal service had really slowed down. So people would send off their ballots, say like, beginning of the month and the recorder wouldn't see until two weeks later um, in their office. And so we had to really encourage people to just drop off their um, ballots at ballot locations or drop off boxes or, or the uh, polling places. And so, and so that helped us to help, help the people a lot. There was still a lot of confusion. There's still a lot of chaos because so many things have changed. They've implemented so many new things where, um, because of, we were getting so many uh, voter registration forms and daily at the county recorder's office, they were seeing that we, they could set up more um, drop-off box locations, um, polling places, and so people were weren't really sure where they needed to go, what they needed to do, how they mm -hmm. need to go about getting registered, and, and then with the extension of the voter registration back in October, and then having it cut back again, it was that, and that committed, you know. Could, could, added to the confusion and so so we there was a lot of stuff that we had to work through but yes. we made it work and we flipped that state blue <laughs> that's an amazing thing so you know one of the things you know uh, 
in terms of you talk about the language barrier, there's also just some making sure, be, being able, as you are, to honor the customs. If I were trying to register voters in the Navajo Nation, I wouldn't be very good at it because I, I wouldn't know how to act and what to say. One of the things that you talk about in your article is when you approach somebody or are approach somebody uh, in one of these uh, scenarios, you you introduce your clan, I think is the, the phrase that you use. Give people an example of that. What would you say? What would the other person say? So I would so, so I would knock on a person's door and, I, and they would answer and I would say, I would state my, na- uh, my name and I would state my um, clan. And, and it would throw a lot of people off because I introduced myself as Hopi. And so people would look at me suspiciously and I'd be like, well, and they're like, what are you doing here at my door? Why are you, you know, knocking on my door? And I would go in and explain why I'm there, why I'm knocking on their door and why a Hopi, somebody claiming to be Hopi, um, is knocking on their door. Um, and, the, and and I have a story about that. Uh, four or five generations ago, my grandmother, who was Hopi, was stolen from Hopi and brought to Navajo. Well, the lady that she was given to, what she was supposed to take her on as, as her slave. But fortunately enough for my grandmother, my great-great-grandmother, um, the, the lady decided to raise her as her own. And so that's how, became, that's how we became on Navajo, came to be on Navajo. Um, and so people are like, and, and out of the respect for the Navajo lady that took my grandmother in those generations ago, you know, I'm back to help the people to say thank you and really help make this possible to help the people both, not just both, not just on Navajo Nation, but also in, on Hopi as well and, and with any other nations across the United States. So, yeah, you'd even describe a, um, an encounter with a gentleman who says to you, uh, I'm born for the red mark in, uh, on my cheek, right? Which I think also corresponds to part of your clan identification. Do I have that right? Yes. And that would make him my father, my my clan father on my dad's side. And so, yes. And so it's really interesting to be out there and to and you would think that you would out there among strangers, but when, once you start introducing yourselves, the other individual introduces themselves as well, and you find that you're related in some way in, in your clan system because you have the maternal clan, uh, your paternal clan, your your grandmother's clan, your fa- grandfather's clan, and then your grandfather and your grandmother on your father's side as well. And so, so you have you. Wherever you're at on the nation or even in the world or on, in the United States, you come across somebody that's related to you through clan. And so and you, so you don't ever feel like you're alone out there. All right. We have to stop there, although there's like a million other things I wanted to ask you about. But um, but you got to get to work. You're going to have to hold that New Mexico seat uh, if, in fact, Deb Holland becomes secretary of the interior, which sounds like a, a great and historic event. Uh, Tara Benali, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you again for having me. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, Once again, you'll have an opportunity to pledge right here. Please do it. Please do it during our show if you care about what we do and how we do it. Um, Yeah, this is the right time to pledge. Thank you for listening. Thank you for pledging if you do. And then she found herself a lover. Two kids in the house. She set goals to break the cycle. She changed her whole world because she refused to be idle. And the number to call is 1-800-584-2788 or visit WNPR.org to support the Colin McEnroe Show. I am Lee Newton. I'm here with Lucy Nalpathanchel, and we'd love to invite you to join us right now. This hour, we have a goal of $1,000 for the Colin McEnroe Show. We're working our way toward that. 
here during our December radio campaign. You can be a part of it right now. Join us. You can give any amount that you'd like. If you'd like to give a single gift, you can do that. If you'd like to become a monthly sustainer, that's a way that a lot of people like to do it. Give a little bit each month. It feels good. It's easy on your budget. And it makes a real long-term difference uh, for the programming that you enjoy here on Connecticut Public Radio. But do it right now. Work our way toward that $1,000 goal. 1-800-584-2788. Or visit WNPR.org. Lucy. Thank you, Lee. You know, I've, I've been thinking about how it's been a challenging year for all of us in one way or another. And something about the Colin McEnroe show, uh, for many of you who listen, uh, we know that Colin and his team bring you really interesting conversation uh, with uh, whether they're authors or comedians or just uh, really interesting conversations about off the wall topics. But something that Colin and his team um, they have really done, especially on Monday during the scramble, is spending time talking to scientists and researchers about the latest in this pandemic and the latest in this uh, this journey to get a vaccine. And we are so very close. And so this is a really exciting time uh, as we look to hopefully the next several months getting through this pandemic. But you know that you can rely on the Colin McEnroe Show to provide you uh, with uh, analysis and information that uh, can help us uh, each and every day as we work together to get through this. Again, the number to support this program because you depend on it. 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to WNPR.org. And you know, Lucy, I, I like to you know put on my earbuds, go out for walks and listen to the Colin McEnroe show in the middle of the day if I can get out. And uh, you know, if you would like some earbuds, we have some Connecticut Public Radio wireless ones that are available to you for a gift of $15 a month. But do that right now because this is a show and, and all of the programs that we have on Connecticut Public Radio are a companion for you, mm. whether you're getting up in the morning, getting ready, cooking, exercising, whatever it may be, we are your partner. We're right there along with you, reflecting your values, your interests, uh, as you said, uh, our concerns and about the vaccine and what's happening. We are just as concerned as you are, and we're bringing all of that conversation to you Please support it today. Go to 1-800-584-2788 or online at WNPR.org. 